Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and brace yourselves. There's evil afoot tonight as we celebrate our first edition Halloween special here at the Vigilant Geek Podcast. <laughs> I'm your host, Andrew Puzak, and with me as always from Vigilant Geek Media is... Holden Orm. And today, we have a lot of spooky, bone-chilling, eerie, greasy tales of murder and evil and demons from the burning netherworld of hell. (laughs) So let's jump right into it, ladies and gentlemen. What do you say? Oh, yeah. We um we have a lot of great uh horror graphic novels. We're talking about the horror genre in uh the spirit of Halloween uh this uh week. Um you know, we're going to talk about everything uh you know from uh the works of Alan Moore to the works of Neil Gaiman, uh some popular tales uh you know from Vertigo such as Hellblazer and Preacher. Uh, and, you know, some of the, uh, more current, uh, famous, uh, infamous graphic novels in the horror genre that have been coming out of recent years. So, uh, you know, without further ado, um, why don't we kick off, uh, this particular podcast today and talk a little bit about our first title, uh, Spawn. What do you say, bud? Sure. Um, Spawn is... Many may or may not know is uh, a character owned uh, title or, or creator owned uh, title um, by Todd McFarlane. It was uh, one of the first book he got wrote after uh, he helped create the image line of comics as far as that publisher is concerned. Um, so Spawn himself is a character. Main character, his name's Al Simmons. Um, and it uh as it turns out the the federal government ends up um getting sick of him al's kind of uh an operator type doing uh clandestine wet work and assassinating people for the government until he kind of gets sick of it and then the government's like all right well guess what then then he has uh one of his friends kill him and then after he dies uh this dynamic uh being called Mal Bolgia ends up um, capturing his soul and turns it and turns him into a hell spawn. <laughs> and uh yeah, so it gives him this special um hell spawn carapace that gives him uh abilities to pretty much do all sorts of things and what it is is they give these people who who like to kill other bad people and they give them this, this carapace and promise them that like they can go back to the world and get their revenge. And they hope 
that he goes and kills a bunch of other evil people so that the, those evil people in turn can be their souls can be captured and put into the ranks of hell's army hell's army of souls <laughs> so from there um he goes ahead and um he's learning how to use his carap- carapace and everything else and uh learning how to be a demon and then one of the first uh, tasks he takes is um he sees in the news that there's that kids are going missing and he doesn't know what's happening to them and it turns out this uh guy who just released from prison this uh child molester but they couldn't prove that he killed any kids and he's been luring kids with his ice cream truck and then capturing them and then grinding them up and then eating them so Spawn finally finds this guy and he goes and then the cops have like a lead on this guy and when they find him Spawn has him strung up by a chain and the guy is stabbed to death by like a million popsicle sticks and he's just hanging there all fat and dead and uh that kind of really kicks off one of the first story arcs of the book. Very, uh, very morbid and gruesome. I love it. It's perfect for this time of year. Yeah, you're, Andrew is definitely enjoying Halloween spirit. Oh, it's one of my favorite times of year. I love the scary stuff, as we all know. Holden, uh, He's not as much of a fan of of the uh, the blood and gore as I am. Uh, let's let's just throw it out there. I am not a terribly big fan of the horror genre as a whole whatsoever. Uh, so I don't uh, I don't get on why other people unlike uh, get off on be like, oh, that was so scary. That's awesome. It's like, is your life so good that you have to make it ruin it for certain periods of time and then and then enjoy how great your life is? Some more? Yes. Yeah. Well, apparently, <laughs> lots of people do um, across the board, although the genre has produced some really good stuff. Yeah, it's kind of hard uh, not to cut you off there, but, if you know, being a, a fan of the medium as a whole, it's, it's kind of hard, even for someone like Holden, who doesn't isn't huge into the horror genre it's still you know it's almost impossible not to at least recognize uh some of the great stories in the medium uh just because you know we're such scholars of the medium as a whole to begin with and there's just so much good stuff out there yeah i mean i can understand like really good horror will take a thing that people overdo in society and show it in an extreme that is terrifying in a way that it makes you look at the concept of whatever it is they're trying to depict and really make you seriously think about it. Um, I can't think of any examples right now. Like Spawn. Sure. <laughs> you know, Spawn, he's a, he's working for the government and he realizes that they're more evil than the demons are. So he's just going to kill himself and just become a demon instead. And he's got powers because of that. And, you know, he's fighting the, you know, the government. They're the real evil. And then there, he's gonna kill serial rapist killer. Yeah. Well, they're evil too. Yeah. Spawn's, Spawn's evil, but he's not as evil as these other evildoers. He's like a lesser of two evils. Well, to a point, well, he's still like <laughs> searching for his revenge, but for the most part, he just hangs out in this, these alleyway back streets with all the homeless guys in New York and he's become like their protector. So like whenever like drug dealers and stuff go and try to screw with the homeless and 
and have them beaten or like are killing homeless people. Like Spawn comes after those kind of people and then just takes care of them. So he is evil in a sense because he's protecting homeless people and we all know that homeless people are evil. So, but he's not quite as evil as the drug dealers that are trying to commit evil acts on the evil homeless people. So, there you go. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, uh, you know, um, one of the most infamous horror tales, uh, that has ever been told, uh, the great, uh, industry veteran, Mr. Todd McFarlane, who's also, uh, the Head cheese down at Image Comics. He's uh, a co-creator, co-founder of that, as we spoke about in our Image Comics podcast. Um, and some, you know, I, I, I've never personally been uh, a, a big uh, fan of the book, mainly just because I haven't had a chance to dive into it. Uh, it, it and, and it also is one of those few uh, titles that we spoke about that uh, has not really ever rebooted. Well, it's 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 still ongoing. It's, it's ongoing, an, yeah. It's an incredibly long run. I believe it just uh, issue two fifty happened a couple months ago. Yeah. I mean, the only reason I got into it is because I picked up the Spawn Compendium. Uh, a compendium is a graphic novel that compiles several editions. Um, the one that I picked up is in black and white, which really doesn't capitalize on all the fantastic usage of colors and all the color work that actually are within the Spawn books. So that's kind of – it's nice to look at things – certain things belong in black and white, like um, Walking Dead, which we'll talk about later. Great in black and white originally was done black and white. Spawn was originally done in color and looks amazing in color. I just kind of wish I could have gotten a compendium that was in color. Well, uh, I mean, I'm not sure if they have compendiums for Spawn in color, but if they do, we'll have to keep our eyes peeled. Well, if they do, I'd, I'd be willing to reinvest because uh, I, I believe the experience is just it would be that much better. And um, but uh, so far, it's been really, really good. Um, I mean, it's gone on really for a very long time. Jeez, I mean, it's been going since the early '90s, and it's still going. And, uh, they, uh, of course, uh, put out that, uh, motion picture, uh, live action spawn, uh, in the mid nineties, I believe. Yeah. I so far it has little or nothing to do with the comics. It's like, it's almost exists on its own. I, I enjoyed it when I saw it though. Of course I didn't know anything about the character. Yeah. I, I didn't either. Uh, yeah, I thought it was all right. I, I think if they, Decided to take a second crack at it nowadays. You mentioned CGI and all that. Well, someone put uh, out a uh, a fan film for it, and it was very much horror related. That was a very much a horror short. Oh, geez, I'm gonna have to try to find that. It's it'll probably be on YouTube. I'm gonna go look for that tonight. Apparently, it took years to make because this wasn't you know. So, One of those Hollywood budget things. This was somebody like chilling out in their dark room with a computer. Right. Somebody who's, you know, cr- probably done a lot of crowdfunding and what have you. You know, I've, I've seen some of the, uh, live action DC fan films online and, and some of the Marvel ones that they've made too. And, and it's actually, it, it's pretty amazing what, uh, some of these, uh, aspiring filmmakers out there that can actually pull together without, uh, the resources that Hollywood can provide. Obviously, you're not going to get those action 
sequences. Uh, but you know, uh, I watched, uh, there's a particular, uh, channel on YouTube, uh, I highly, highly recommend it. It's called Bat in the Sun. Uh, it's very famous. And they got some of the best, uh, DC and particularly Batman related, uh, fan films. Not to get on a big tangent, but, uh, um, Batman's something you can sort of do because they were successful, uh, you know, in the early 90s, uh, uh, creating a live action movie like that. Cause once again, you've mentioned in previous podcasts, you know, Batman punches things. And that's something that you can, you can show on film, whether it's, you know, uh, you, you know, you're using a, a, a camera that's, you know, that's fi- it. 50 years old, or if you're using, you know, top of the line, it's something that you can show no matter what. Well, it's very so, easy to depict a character doing, punching something. You don't need, a computer with tons of memory and gigabytes and RAM and, and software in order to record someone punching something. Right, right. So, um, but moving right along, uh, you know, uh, if you're, uh, somebody out there who is looking for some bone chilling reads, uh, particularly in the graphic novel medium, uh, we're gonna discuss a lot of other titles here today, but, you know, uh, pick up one of those compendiums, uh, for Spawn, particularly if you find one in color. I have not seen one yet, but, uh, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet good money that they're probably out there. Uh, I mean, a lot of good artists worked on that title. Uh, first one that comes to mind for me is Greg Capullo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, uh, a lot of people worked with Todd on that book and, and, uh, you know, I'm sure you're right, Holden, uh, you're going to want a color compendium if uh, you can find it to really give the story justice and the whole experience justice. So. Well, if they, if they ever put one out, I'll probably snatch it up. And it'll be a lot easier for me to catch up on the, on the stuff. It's just, uh, I don't know, my pet peeve is if you're going to portray something a certain way, continue to portray that across all all written mediums. If you're, if you're writing it and you're putting out a comic and the comic's in color... Every compendium or graphic novel that is included within that should be also in color. Agreed, my friend. Because we all know putting things in black and white is the devil. (laughs) Um, Moving on to uh, another uh, infamous horror writer in the medium, Let's talk a little bit about Alan Moore and particularly his work on Swamp Thing and his work on uh, From Hell. Uh, let's start. Let's start off with a little Swamp Thing action here. Right. So uh, quite recently, uh, I've been trying to pick up a lot of graphic novels having to do with uh, classic characters and classic runs that kind of defined certain writers as stars. Uh, and masters within the medium. And one of the first things that Alan Moore started with writing comics in the States was his run on Swamp Thing. Um, it's uh, extremely well done. The story starts off by concluding another arc where he was facing a foe named Arcane. And it turns out that Arcane had died and the army's hunting for Swamp Thing in the forest and they finally find him and they shoot him up and they capture him and they bring him to this lab and they're like, well, they think he's dead, but he's not dead. Swamp Thing, not Arcane, right? Swamp Thing, Arcane's okay. dead. Okay, Arcane's dead, but Arcane, uh, especially in the New 52, um, 
has been uh, Swamp Thing's one of his main nemesis nemeses. Right. So clearly something happens supernaturally where Arcane comes back later on. I assume yeah, there but, must be. I but, mean, uh, um, not to interrupt. Do continue. So um, they're in this lab, and they the uh, the rich man who was in charge of the troops or whatever. He's this contractor guy. He's got a lot of money. He enlists the help of the floral man, uh, Jason Woodrow. The floral man! <laughs> so he's, um, specializes in botany. He's kind of turning into a plant himself. So they go and he does this autopsy on the, on the swamp thing. The swamp thing, as many may know or may not know, his uh, originally named was Alec Holland, and he was uh, doing research in the swamps, swamps of Louisiana, testing out the serum that uh, is fertilizer that would make plants grow. So uh, somebody caught wind of that. They didn't like what he was doing, and they killed him in the bomb blast, and he ended up falling into the bottom of the swamp. So anyway, what they do is the foreman goes ahead and he does this autopsy in the swamp thing and he's got all these these plant organs, these organs that don't make any sense because they don't serve any purpose. And he's got like kidneys, heart, brain, lungs, and none of them do what they would normally do, but yet he has them. Hmm. So he's trying to figure out what like why this is. And and the swamp thing's kind of half frozen in there, you know? So then he finally figures it out. Um, I guess there's this experiment done with these specific kind of worms that, that if, uh, what they did was they trained one of these worms to navigate the maze, or a maze, right? So what they did is they take that worm, they chopped it up into a bunch of pieces, and they fed it to the other worms. Ah. Once the other worms ate that worm, they went and took the worms that hadn't done the maze, and they put them in the maze. And all of a sudden, through transfer of nutrients or something, the other worms automatically knew how to run the maze. And what he had figured out was is that Alec Holland had died and he's down and he's in the in the bottom of this swamp, right? Mm-hmm. Well then the plants go ahead and they start taking the nutrients and devouring the body. And these plant cells started forming and created a body. And these plant cells learned all the things that Alec Holland knew. So one of the things that Swamp Thing as a character is struggling with is like, oh, how did I transform into this? I'm a man named Alec Holland. But in reality, he's a plant who thinks he's Alec Holland because the plants had consumed him. So Wow, that's a mind trip and a half, huh? So then, so Woodrow goes and he tells this old guy like what what he's figured out. And then he's like, all right, well, guess what? You're fired. You already figured out what I wanted to know. So Woodrow's like, all right, well, I'm not going like down like that. He, he 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 finds the controls for the building and he turns off the freezer where Swamp Thing's being held. So Swamp Thing regenerates because you can't kill plant matter. It just was kind of like right. he thought he was dead because that's what a normal body would do, but he's not. So the Swamp Thing gets out and he goes around and he and the notes were open to the page explaining what had happened to him and the Swamp Thing's just pissed. Because he thinks he's he's this human being, but he's not. Wow, and the metaphorical chlorophyll has now officially hit the fan. That's right. (laughs) So then the old guy thinks he's all safe, and then the Swamp Thing confronts him, and then the Swamp Thing kills him. And then the Swamp Thing goes back to the bayou, 
in uh, Louisiana, and the floral man follows him. And then the Swamp Thing was just like, he couldn't find comfort in being a man. He had no hope to returning what he did. So what he decided is going to become a plant. And he just goes and he just, he, he springs roots and becomes part of the swamp. And he's just becoming one with the swamp. He's just being a plant. He's just chilling there. So meanwhile, Woodrow is going ahead and... And he's doing research still on, on Swamp Thing and the Swamp Thing's growing these like potatoes off of him and then he's got these flowers growing on him. So the guy harvests the potatoes and eats them and he's trying to get the knowledge to become more one with nature and become more of a plant himself. And finally he does it and he, he clips this flower and he, he becomes more in touch with, with the plant world and he's just like, oh, well I'm gonna kill all the all the humans, because they're just polluting everything. That's what the plants want me to do. I'm their agent. They're sending me to kill all the people. So he goes, ah. and he overgrows, like, this one town, and everyone hides in their houses and makes all the plants, like, like com- confine them. And then he makes the plants produce tons of oxygen. And then finally somebody inside had to turn on a stove or, like, they wanted to have a cigarette inside the house they do that and then it explodes and he makes this one kid film it on a camera and then kicks him out of town as a warning to everyone else that he this is what he's going to be doing to the world so then they had this kind of sidebar where like the justice league's in the space and they're like what do we this guy is controlling like all the green life on the planet now wow and they're like i don't know i don't think we have anybody who knows how to handle this so they're freaking out oh batman would figure something out well in this in this case, he didn't. In this case, when you know when Batman doesn't have a, a strategy or a plan, then then it really is a horror tale. Things are really fucked in, in because the, you know there really is no hope if the Dark Knight, the greatest detective that ever lived, does not have a contingency, and everyone will go to hell. <laughs> so in in this instance, um, the. The swamp thing, he's just chilling, being part of the green with, like, all the other plants, and he notices a disturbance within the green. So he's like, you've ruined everything, every part of my life. Like, I thought I could have been a man, and you ruined that, and then and then now I'm trying to be a plant, and you wouldn't even let me do that, because this guy is, like, like shifting the balance. So swamp thing goes, and he confronts the guy, and he's just like... They're like, no, see, come watch my victory. Because, like, he sees them as, like, a brother to the Swamp Thing. And he's like, and the Swamp Thing's like, if you kill all the the living creatures on this planet, what's going to be there to convert oxygen into the carbon nox- dioxide that we're going to need to survive? So the guy comes to this realization, and then all of the plants come to that realization, too. So he can't manipulate them anymore. And then he's like, oh, so he like runs back to his little hut in the thing and he spray like by then he's become more plant and he's got like bark like skin and he tries to spray skin on his arms and stuff. And then the Justice League finally comes in and then they lock him away in Arkham and uh, and then that's like the first story arc within the book. And it was Neat. it was really well done. And then the, the second story arc was um, Abigail Arcane, like Arcane's sister, who is a friend of Al Colland. She goes and she's hanging out with him in the swamp, you know, and she ends up getting this job at this home for autistic children. Hmm. And it's this kid who, like, freaks out when people spell things wrong because what happened was his parents picked up a Ouija board and 
and they go to spell something, and the random thing they spelled out was actually an incantation to summon a demon. <laughs> oh, drats. So it's this monkey demon in it. Like, this little monkey demon killed all the, um, like, his parents, but, like, the monkey demon's, like, kind of attached to the kid because, like... Like the, he's they, they, he's treating the kid like it's his, he's their um his master, but the kid doesn't tell him to do anything. So the monkey's just like, oh, I'm just gonna make people afraid because that's what he feeds on fear. He's like a little scarecrow monkey demon. Yeah. So he goes in there, and then Jason Blood shows up. Oh wow! And then um and then they get into this big brawl at the hospital, and the three of them end up fighting it out. The the monkey demon gets really like buff and and uh Etrigan Jason Blood turns into Etrigan and he's going to kill all the kids so that the the demon doesn't have anything to fear so Swamp Thing shows up and gets into a fight with Etrigan and he helps the kids escape and and then eventually the monkey demon's like sitting there and then the kid keeps demeaning the monkey demon until it become it loses its power and becomes real small in which Etrigan eats the monkey demon and then, nom, 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 nom. and then everyone's good. And then Swamp Thing goes back to chill in the swamp. And then, uh, and then Etrigan goes on his merry way. And then, uh, that's the end of volume one of, uh, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. And it was really well done. Wow. A lot of really awesome, uh, out of the box ideas and concepts for, uh, those first couple story arcs. And those were, you know, very monumental story arcs for that title. I, you know, uh, Pretty much anything that Alan Moore has touched, uh, tends to be that way. Yeah. Um, regardless, you know, it's just the kind of, uh, stamp that he puts on, uh, the work he's put out. Um, so, but, you know, uh, something, you know, a little more mainstream that Alan Moore was still able to apply, like, you know, his out of the box thinking to, uh, you know, if you're into monsters of different sorts, uh, swamp monsters, uh, plant monsters, you know, a little bit more out of the box than your typical vampire zombie tale, uh, swamp thing may be for you. And, uh, you know, uh, they get those compendiums like Holden picked up of some of the, the earlier, uh, Alan Moore stuff. And, and of course, uh, I've heard good things about, uh, the run, uh, they put out on the, uh, during the new 52 uh for something a little more current uh i don't believe swamp things being put out right now correct me if i'm wrong um it was but then they switched to dcu and i don't believe it's out since, right now yeah since dcu but i mean yeah. swamp thing it'll come back i mean it always does yeah. time, time with stories and they're, they're always going to give it another shot because it's such a great idea um but uh, speaking of big, weighty tombs, didn't uh, Alan Moore go on his very own write a uh, very large, thick book about the Jack the Ripper? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, even, you know, the the not, you know, the non-horror stuff that, that Alan Moore has put out, uh, such as, you know, well, V for Vendetta, Watchmen, things like that, you know, the, the real famous stuff. I mean, even that has had some eerie tinges and eerie moods to it. You know, so, uh, he's definitely the kind of out of the box writer that can, uh, exhibit different emotional responses from his readers. Uh, but yeah, uh, private project that Alan Moore, uh, I forget the publisher. He worked with, uh, Eddie Campbell, uh, penciler Eddie Campbell, uh, 
uh, on was, uh, the book, uh, I mean, and it's, it's a gigantic, it's probably the, the largest graphic novel, single graphic novel I have read, uh, but is, uh, the story of Jack the Ripper through the eyes of Jack the Ripper, uh, entitled From Hell. Now, uh, Alan Moore did take some creative liberties, um, cause as you know, uh, not everything is known about Jack the Ripper. They have, uh, a pretty damn, uh, good idea of who he was. Uh, but he took a few creative liberties. Uh, uh, you know, he managed to incorporate, uh, a lot of rituals, uh, that, that have been rumored to, uh, been practiced by the Freemasons into the story and how, uh, the beliefs of the Freemasons slowly started driving William Withy Gull, Dr. Gull, uh, who was the, uh, uh, Chief, uh, doc, royal doctor for the, for the Queen of England at the time. Um, it, you know, some of those beliefs uh, of the Freemasons, you know, where, where, uh, you know, in his version, granted, this is all his version of the Jack the Ripper story, um, and some of it's fact and some of it's fiction. But, um, where he gets this idea in his head where he starts going mad and he starts thinking that he needs to, uh, you know, cut people open, much like he did, uh, on his medical, uh, exam tables for, uh, uh, you know, different medical procedures, uh, cause he, he was a surgeon by trade. Um, but, you know, he, he gets these wild ideas in his head that he's, he's a god and that he, you know, he's, he becomes one of the upper level Freemasons and, uh, he, he, he starts believing that, uh, in order to uh, maintain his godlike powers, he must uh, slice open human bodies and, uh, you know, take in the essence of other people. And, and that's when things get really gross and morbid and uh, horrific. I mean, so much so that, that I could not read this book in, in one straight shot. I had to put it down for quite a while uh, and take a break. It's just one of those real... Uh, eerie yet thought-provoking tales that can really, you know, get your mind going to some dark places that you might not want it to for a while. But uh, um, actually, uh, for those longtime uh, Vigilant Geek blog readers out there, uh, we did do uh, a little list uh, last year for Halloween. Uh, um, and, and, and one of those lists we did were the top ten scariest comic book characters of all time. And, and Jack the Ripper technically being a, a comic book character since Alan Moore uh, made him such. Uh, one uh, scariest, you know, number one scariest uh, comic book character is just, you know, not only uh, do you have this tale that, you know, is real to an extent, um, where someone really did go around slicing up uh, prostitutes in Whitechapel, England, uh, Whitechapel, London, uh, you also, uh, have it being drawn and written through the eyes of the actual serial killer. So, uh, it adds a particularly, uh, eerie and, and, and horrific, uh, perspective to that story. I mean, all the way up from when he was a little guy and, uh, you start to notice that things aren't really right with him. Uh, you know, he encounters like, you know, mouse, uh, mice rather. And, you know, where, 
where he's uh, living and, and he starts cutting them open and then it leads to the whole medical school thing and the Freemason thing and he becomes this, uh, you know, decorated, he even gets knighted, you know, in England uh, for being, you know, the royal surgeon and then from there you can see, uh, you know, where the mind of the maniac takes over. It's just a fantastic read. Alan Moore, once again, uh, one of the great out-of-the-box thinkers and writers of our time. Uh, I highly, highly recommend it for anyone who wants a good scare. And uh, as you know, uh, stories that tend to have, a, you know, a basis of truth uh, are, are all the more uh, terrifying uh, for that. Uh, just to just to say, hey, you know, like this this happened at least to an extent. I'm not quite sure if all the Freemasonry stuff. Uh, I mean, it was said that Jack the Ripper uh, was a Freemason. Uh, I'm not sure if it came into play quite as much, but it was really interesting to have kind of like the conspiracy theory aspect thrown in there too. So, fantastic horror read for those that really really want a good bone chill. Uh, highly recommended. So, moving right along here. <laughs> Time to discuss one of the old, old time vertigo horror tales that, uh, came out, uh, I want to say early nineties, uh, in Sandman. Right. Um, Sandman's one of those books that takes something from probably every genre. Really, um, but as far certainly, certainly. as far as horror is concerned, within the Sandman uh, books, I think my favorite horror tale that really came out of that one would be out of Sandman Volume Two, The Doll's House. Ooh, that was a good read. So, in in The Doll's House, what happens is is Sandman has just regained his power after being held captive for over fifty years, and He's he's trying to fix things within the dreaming. And as it turns out, um, one of his main nightmares has escaped into the real world. And his name is the Corinthian. The Corinthian is a nightmare and he snuck into the world and he's and he he's turned himself into the one of the most successful, prolific serial killers in that humanity's ever seen but he's not human he's a nightmare he's dr a dream a nightmare incarnate an actual nightmare a living breathing nightmare walking around as a man and he's not much to really look at he's got uh, he's a guy he wears jeans he's got the white t-shirt he's always got these sunglasses on but when you remove the sunglasses in place of his eyes are little mouths and one of his main uh things that he does as as a serial killer, the one trophy he takes is he removes his victim's eyes and he puts them in his sockets so that he can see how scared they were before they die. And he knows everything they know because he's see it looking through their eyes. So as things lead along through the main story, um, Dream is on the hunt for uh, part of the story is Dream is on the hunt for the Corinthian. So within this, there's this small hotel in the 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 ballroom or the um where they where they have a hold events and they're having a convention for serial killers but they're calling That's it a right. serial convention so that all <laughs> these serial killers and child molesters 
all these really prolific ones, and they're all getting together, and they're just meeting up with each other, and they're they're going to have uh, the Corinthian as this main speaker, and um, there's this one called um, serial killer called Pleb uh, Funland, and he's this big fat nerdy guy, and he knows this. Uh, this place that's like a Chuck E. Cheese and he sneaks up and he gets like little kids to come away with him. And they know there are people who run the place who know that he's doing this, but they don't want the word to get out because then they'll go out of business. So there's this guy, he's just this greasy child molester and, uh, he ends up greasy and he ends up trying to rape one of the main characters, uh, for that particular book. And, and dream ends up popping up and he puts him to sleep and he, he gives him a happy dream where he's he's dancing around a tree with little kids and and then finally dream faces off against the Corinthian while he's speaking he just appears out of nowhere and he puts all the serial killers to sleep and the Corinthian thinks he's going to buck dream himself but dream has dominion over all dreams whether they're nightmares or not and he just you're just like I made you. I'm just going to unmake you, and he just unmakes him. But like everything that happened before that was just really creepy and very thought provoking. As uh, much of Neil Gaiman's work tends to be, uh, and yeah, actually, uh, I have to agree with you that that was such. I mean, besides, uh, there's a couple of other story arcs I really love from Sandman, but that one might be my favorite as well. The only other one that comes to mind this point as being like super creepy and there's a lot of horror elements uh within sandman they um you know he deals with lucifer and and hell and that whole realm as well and we're gonna get into that in a moment as we uh i, I you know uh open the floor to you again and we can discuss uh lucifer but um out of all the horror elements uh that that are shown in within the 13 such volumes of this uh amazing story that that Neil Gaiman uh he took over the title of Sandman and he made it just something spectacular compared to what it was before um and and also if if you want you know uh more of a in-depth background in you know in regards to Sandman uh Feel free to check out one of our earlier podcasts that we did specializing on Vertigo comics, uh, where we really dive into, you know, uh, uh, the in-depth nitty gritty for, uh, you know, all these Vertigo horror titles and stuff, uh, among other Vertigo titles. But, um, anyways, getting back to what I was, uh, gonna say is, um, one other story arc that really I found was just really awesome was, uh, uh, and really, really bone chilling was uh perhaps uh uh Neil Gaiman's revival of the great char- the great DC villain known as Dr. Death. That's uh I was also thinking of that one at the end in, of in volume the diner. Yeah. at the end of volume 1 where he ends up getting his hands on Dream of the Endless's ruby amulet which right. which he stored a bunch of his power in for one reason or another just I don't know, one of these godlike beings just decides to put all their power in this one trinket so that anyone could just have it. And it was, it was great because, um, he was using it to cause all this havoc all over the world. But what all they showed you is the interactions of these people who always, um, occupy this same diner every right. day. And then it shows what he does with people and how he makes them act over the span of a day. And that that was amazing. It it was certainly like some of the best uh, 
horror writing you'll see uh, from Neil Gaiman. And yeah, just the portrayal of all that. Um, and, 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 you know, you have all sorts of different walks of life in that diner from the waitress who like wants to be a writer and, and the lesbian couple and, and how, you know, uh, you know, they, they, they are pretty much, they, they're, they don't know it, but they're pretty much trapped in that diner and then that's where they all. Oh, and just, he manipulates them in all these ways. Like he makes them laugh out loud for like an hour and then he makes them all scared. Yeah. And then, and then he makes them all have sex with each other and then, then he turns them into wild animals and this one guy right. rips out another guy's throat. And then one hour he makes them all like kind of realize what they've been doing and get be sober for an hour. And then he just toys with their emotion. He's just using these people as his playthings until Dream finally confronts him. And and I it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's the whole goal is is to get Dream's attention to begin with. Uh, I think I think that's how it went. Uh, I forget the, how they tied into the character. I believe um, Doctor Death somehow had some link with another character that was uh, part of or was related to the people who had confined him in the first place. Because the people who had confined him in the first book, they went ahead and they stripped him of all the things that made him him. They took away his his uh, his his mask, and they took away his pouch. And then they took away his, um, and they took away his, his ruby necklace. And he, all right. these things are his sources of power. The, the mask kind of like shows like who he is and, and his station. And, and the, the pouch is what he uses to put people asleep. And then, and then the ruby can, has all sorts of crazy power. And then, uh, in that first book, he had a lot of cameos with a lot of other characters. That's right. Uh, everyone from Martian Manhunter to... John Constantine. Constantine was in there, yep. Uh, I'm trying to think of who else. Uh, yeah, they, I mean, I think, you know, that was also back when, when, uh, Neil Gaiman was first starting to meet with that, uh, editor of DC, uh, Karen Berger, I think it was her name, and, and, and I think to get that title, like, Back off the ground again. I, I, th I think that's why you had so many cameos there. But I mean, once people were reading Gaiman's take on the character, I mean, it spoke for itself. Right. Well, but, I believe Sandman is a character. He came. Someone told him to write something on Sandman, and he just created his own character based on the name. Right. Right. And then I think they were teetering on whether or not he was going to exist within a universe of his own making, or whether or not he was going to be involved. In the overall things going on within the DC universe. And at the beginning, he kind of did, because he met those characters. Right. Uh, but eventually, it just span, spun off into a world of its own. And it certainly is. A, a whole universe of its own, almost, you know, with different realms. And uh, we could talk Sandman all day, but one of the greatest things to come out of Sandman... Uh, is uh, another straight-up uh, horror title uh, named Lucifer. Yes, uh, I mean, I've discussed Lucifer before. It's yeah, one once again, uh, check out the Vertigo podcast. I believe it's episode four, I want to say, yeah. uh, on the uh, Vigilant Geek. Well, Lucifer was great because it uh, it mixed fantasy and horror fantastically. Um, it took its own take on, on how things were with religion and made its own... 
made its own kind of lore itself. Um, but uh, within it, they had a lot of great um, stories that like one shots that didn't really have anything that were related indirectly to the character of Lucifer himself. Um, I remember one specifically. Um, what they're doing is they're following the life of this uh, this guy. He's working this dead end job. He's kind of a pencil pusher, and at night he's trying to make it in his punk band. And little does he know that inside his very own head, the demons are going ahead, and they're having a big meeting. And all the demons are getting together because I guess during this time the uh, the host of heaven is having issues because uh, Yahweh had vacated the throne up in heaven. And people are like, oh, heaven's weak. Let's overthrow them. So all these demons are having, having this meeting there and they're waiting for, for Lucifer to show up. They're trying to bring all that power to, together to try to lure him to speak to him. So there's this one demon in particular who's in charge of security and doing things. So while they're all occupied inside this guy's head where he doesn't know they are, he decides to possess this guy's body and he takes him, takes him and he, uh, I mean, he was having all these issues in life, so what he does is he goes and and uh, he ends up like stealing a motorcycle, and he goes out drinking, and then uh, and then he finds out that his girlfriend's cheating on him, so he's like, "Your woman's cheating on you! Like, what are you doing?" Like, oh. <laughs> the guy's like, "Oh no, I shouldn't do anything." It's like, "Screw you!" So the demon, while he's possessing him, like grabs a base and freaking. Like smashes the guy who's like cheating with his girlfriend. He catches him in the hack act and just smashes him like across the jaw and just completely takes off the dude's jaw with a base. And then his woman's like, Hello, what are you doing? And then he like grabs <laughs> something sharp and puts it up against her neck and he's like gonna rape her and then the guy kind of fights the possession and they both fall out the window. And then meanwhile, Lucifer then shows up and he's just like, yeah, um, the host of heaven was the only thing keeping um, all of reality held together, and now everything's falling apart at the seams. So since you guys uh, are all demons and thrive on chaos, I'm just going to make it so you can't leave this guy's head later. <laughs> and he just, like, they get just stuck in this guy, and the guy ends up falling out the window to his death. And then the one demon who was possessing him is just like, oh, I haven't had this much fun in years. Oh, well, it was good while it lasted, and... It was, uh, one of the better, one of the better short stories involved that had to do with the overall story. And I mean, that's one of the great things that Lucifer and Sandman had going for it. You had these long story arcs that could go from four to five books, but then they'd have these little filler arcs that you take these, they, they'd build up, they'd build up these characters real fast and they'd have this one filler right. episode and they'd go through all the motions and plot within one book. And it was usually done fairly well and, and uh, most of them have uh, horror elements to them, and then they're actually really good. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I really enjoyed, particularly in Sandman, the different uh, members of the Endless and, you know, uh, his sister's death and, uh, you know, things like that. I mean, there's just there's, there's so much creativity there and, and uh, so much... Uh, intricacy you know in regards to plot uh and 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 yeah i mean those little short stories uh particularly uh in dream country uh they had a lot of them i remember uh where you know the characters have been introduced and then 
they're put in a different scenario and, and, uh, there's different horror elements there. And, and, you know, regardless of whether, you know, it's one, it's a big, you know, arc that, that Gaiman writes or it, it's, you know, just a short, quick one, you know, there's always something there that kind of messes with your head a little bit. And well, I think that's why people really do read this stuff. Was that the one with the Midsummer's Night Dream? Yes. Yeah, that that's one short story in particular won uh, Wonderman Eisner. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Oh, well, it's not surprising. Yeah, well, I mean, he went and he wrote about Shakespeare while almost writing it on the same level as Shakespeare through the characters that Shakespeare had created with all the characters involved in Midsummer's Night Dream. That's right. Yeah. And and what uh well, what that that story in particular was is they take all these characters from uh, the the fairy, and they're invited to come and watch this play by Dream because Dream and Shakespeare are are in cahoots, and Dream has helped Shakespeare go ahead and come up with all these masterpieces because he's got the ability to give a man imagination. And they go, and the fairy get to watch this story about them, even though it never really happened. And it's, and it's just like, oh wow, like, that's probably how it would happen if it were us. And it gives this great look and pays homage and everything all at once. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember that. That was a awesome, awesome story arc to read. Uh, as pretty much, you know, I, 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 like I said, uh, I'm still about halfway through the Sandman volumes because like I'm someone who will pick one up every now and then and continue on with my journey through that, you know, Escapade. That, oh, the, there's there's one and, uh, other one other really good one. I think it was uh, in the early volumes where there's this writer, and he comes into the possession of this muse, and she's kind of being enslaved. And every time he has sex with her, he comes up with ideas on to write stuff better. And dreams like it used to be one of Dream's girlfriends is like, hey, let her go. And it was like, well, I need her for my inspiration. Like, oh, I'll give you so much inspiration. Like, you'll never be able to sleep ever again. So the guy's got so many ideas that he's got to, like, write on every surface. He's, like, using his fingertips and bleeding and writing stuff. He just can't stop until he's just tortured by all these ideas. That's another good horror story that he did. Yeah, and and just so out of the box, so cool. Uh, I love stuff that just, you know, kind of messes with your head a little bit. I guess, you know, that's why I'm one of those sickos that just love the genre. But, uh, yeah, some of these stories, like, really do make your mind do a 180. Uh, and if you're into that kind of thing, it's pretty cool. If you're not, I can see why. <laughs> um, oh, moving on with the Vertigo labels for a little bit longer, uh, a couple more to discuss. Um, this other one uh, follows right in suit with uh, Lucifer in regards to the whole uh, heaven and hell aspect of everything. Uh in uh, Garth Enos and Steve Dillon's Preacher. Uh, Garth Enos wrote the story. Steve Dillon penciled it. Uh, and they worked together on uh, a few other projects, too, over the course of their uh, industry career. Uh, most notably uh, would probably be The Punisher uh, for Marvel. Um, but um, once again, uh, you know, we've talked about Preacher and a few other casts. Uh, different podcasts before. Um, this is a, a little bit different where you have uh, a case where uh, an angel and a demon uh, consummated and had a baby, uh, that baby being Genesis. 
the baby was cast down from heaven and the essence of Genesis, uh, was encompassed by a Reverend Jesse Custer, um, who could not contain the power during a sermon and, uh, set his whole, uh, parish on fire, uh, along with everybody, uh, who was listening to his sermon. Um, so then you get a guy who's on the run, but realizing that he has the power of the word of God, um, where he can essentially, uh, make anyone do anything that he wants them to do. So he embarks on this, uh, uh, crusade. You know, you can call it a crusade because it is sort of a religious, uh, journey, uh, if you believe in that sort of thing. Uh, but you have, uh, uh, Reverend Custer with the power of the word of the Lord. You have his vampire friend Cassidy, um, who's kind of a cool cat, and then you got his uh, on-again, off-again girlfriend Tulip, uh, who's just sort of along for the ride and nice to look at. Um, and, you know, their main uh, crusade is any- everything to do with confronting God himself or herself, the entity of God, um, to find out why uh God has left heaven and left uh the duties of heaven vacant. Uh so uh Jesse Custer is going to is saying, you know, I got this new ability and uh I'm going to confront the Lord and make him tell me why he's abandoned heaven and abandoned the human race, so to speak. Um this journey takes them through all kinds of different uh Adventures, if you will, from everything from, you know, drug and sex fiending one percenters to actual demons to, uh, evil religious cults who are looking to, uh, kidnap him to utilize the word of the Lord for their own gain and just about anything and everything you could think of in between that. Um, but yeah, uh, it's very big on the heaven and hell aspect of things. Angels and demons. You got fallen angels, uh, you know, that have have been captured and trapped uh, on an earth on the earthly realm. Uh, same thing with you know uh, agents of uh, the netherworld of hell. Uh, and you got Jesse Custer in the middle, kind of just uh, stirring the pot. Uh, it's a very interesting, uh, very. Uh, very eerie, but at the same time, they, you know, Preacher relies a little bit more on just being as, you know, sh- almost, they almost rely on shock value. Cause it's, it's sort of, you know, one of those stories that, you know, uh, it, it sort of has the most politically incorrect, uh, situations that you could probably ever have in the medium. And surely, uh, the most, Shocking and, uh, just taboo scenarios that I've ever encountered in the medium so far ever. And I think they rely a lot on that. But there are some, you know, interesting and, and bone chilling horror aspects to the story as well. So they don't completely rely on that. But, um, you know, if, uh, like, I, like I've said many times, if you're extremely conservative, politically correct, or religious person, I would not pick Preacher up. That's gonna not be a good title for you. But if you're somebody who's just, you know, 
looking to be shocked, scared, and amazed all at once. It's certainly uh, an interesting and fun horror read, uh, especially for the season. So, uh, Next on the list, uh, the last Vertigo title that we probably want to touch upon uh, is Hellblazer, the story of John Constantine. Right, and then, I mean, this is probably been the the premier horror book for vertigo i mean there have lately if you look at the line of vertigo titles they've seriously been influenced by this almost half the books on the shelf for vertigo right now have something to do with vampires or some horror aspect right to them um like i zombie was a thing uh american vampire sure and then uh i believe they they had some other ones and it seems like they're everything had to do with ghouls or zombies or vampires that one they were place. big 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 on the zombie shit for a while i don't know if they still are i don't but. know that's what turned me off to them i mean when i first started reading comics very seriously and picking up graphic novels for things um it didn't be it didn't used to be that way but uh and then at some point it just uh really became like the the fantasy elf vampire zombie show until a hundred bullets came along. Yeah, until a hundred bullets <laughs> came along, and then then you had other stories like DMZ, which was a story about a guy who was living in a the demilitarized zone of Manhattan between uh, the seceded states of America and the conflict that was going on there, and then uh, a couple of why the last man that we've we've talked about that one before. Which is, that we, uh, that was a cool one. Yeah, why the last man's great. I, th- I heard that they're trying to do it again, only this time it's going to be... I guess it's getting pitched for a pilot on FX. Yeah, I've heard that as well. It seems all these, like, you know, uh, veteran Vertigo titles are, you know, in some way, shape, or form going to end up on either the big screen or the small screen uh, in the next five years. Well, I mean, when you when you have something that is an extremely good story with a built-in fan base, it's... It's, it's not, a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not hard to go ahead and try to pursue something, to go ahead and push to another medium when you already have those two things waiting for you. Right. But um, but uh, Hellblazer was, for a very long time, I mean, you can pick any Hellblazer arc you want, really. Uh, the one that comes to mind that was kind of a favorite of mine was uh, was the one with Metamuth. Was there's this yeah. hunger demon, and what happens is there's the shaman, and he sees this kid, and the demon is sealed away within this kid, and, the, and until the kid starves, and then the demon will be cast away, and that's the only way to get rid of it. Well, this guy see, uh, this guy runs runs into it. Gary Lester. Gary Lester. The junkie. The famous the junkie. junkie. And he's like, oh, I know how to take care of this. This kid's possessed. I'll fix that. So he finds this jar and. He takes the demon out of the kid and puts it into the jar and customs at the airport when he's flying back through the States. Goes ahead and releases the demon and the demon gets out and it's just getting into people and just making it consume and consume and consume until it kills the host and then it moves on. So after that, eventually Constantine actually eventually ends up getting involved with this and this is where it's just like you don't want Constantine as your friend. <laughs> and he had known Gary for a very, very long time. And what he ends up doing is he ends up sealing the demon within Gary. He ends up uh, getting together with Papa Midnight and Papa Midnight goes and he performs the ritual. And the demon ends up getting stuck in Larry, uh, Gary and Gary is like, God damn you, John Constantine. Blah. And the demon gets sealed up in the guy and then the da- guy dies. And 
Constantine's like, you should have just left it alone. Like, why'd you have to do this? This is the only way you could have done it. Because Gary ended up being kind of possessed by the demon himself, but his main hunger was for, for smack. Yeah. And he tried grinding up flies and tried to shoot them up, but it didn't work out. It didn't work that way, so the demon couldn't really kill him. And so I, I, I forget him. who did like the art on this arc too, but uh, it was depicted in panels in such a, like, a just disgusting way. But it just like it gave you the chills or the eebie-jeebies, but you know you couldn't t- you couldn't look away either because it was just such a weird, crazy story. Uh, more often yeah. than not, I I can't read Hellblazer in for any extended period of time. I'll I'll read a couple issues within a graphic novel and then I'll have to take a break from it for because it's just I feel unclean and dirty after <laughs> reading it and it just uh, doesn't set well and then everything seems worse after you read it it's just like if you're prone to depression or anxiety in the first place like not that they aren't really good stories but it's not the kind of thing that's going to put you in a fantastic mood like you're probably yeah. going to end up feeling like shittier than you did before Definitely you, not. You, you picked yeah. it up in the first place. And that's why I have five, five volumes of a Hellblazer, and I've only really read one and a half of them. Yeah, well, it's definitely not the most uplifting tale. You know, it's this miserable old Englishman with, you know, the trench coat and the cigarettes, and he's, you know, he's performing exorcisms and uh, what have you on some really nasty horror elements. And actually... uh uh, for those of you who were into the Constantine television show, that it did get canceled. Uh, nothing to do with the show itself, though. It was just in a horrible time slot. Uh, we've discussed this before, but uh, uh, well, they they covered a, a lot of those big uh, story arcs from those first couple volumes of Jamie Delano's run uh, that you were talking about. They covered that story. Uh, one of the episodes had to do with the uh, the hunger demon, and and they 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 they. Followed the source material so well, and it kind of gave you like a really great uh, live action visual of, you know, sort of what that scenario could be like. Either way, very creepy, very uh, gross. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, that's the kind of stuff that the creepy crawly kind of stuff that you want to pick up this time of year. If uh, just uh, if you're like me, if you're like setting up the mood, that'll do it for you. Yeah, there's pretty much uh, nothing within the horror realm that John Constantine does not encounter. Um, so if you're looking for an all-around just awesome horror read, uh, you just cannot go wrong with John Constantine Hellblazer. Um, so moving on from some of those Vertigo titles, uh, let's talk about uh, the blockbuster image title, The Walking Dead. Now, uh, the general public is extremely, uh... Yeah, well, they're all over it. The Walking Dead has become a complete phenomenon. With the television show and all that. But, uh, you know, it obviously started with the comic by Robert Kirkman. Uh, it is in black and white. And, uh, it's been going on for, geez, I want to say close to 40 volumes now. Um, oh gee, no, it's much more than that. I think they just cleared 150 a little while ago. Well, I'm not talking about individual issues. I'm talking about volumes, but yeah. Oh, uh, oh, for the television show. 
No. Oh. The comic book, but volumes of uh, trade paperbacks is what I was referring to, because I read them in volumes. Okay, so. yeah. Uh, I believe they are on 13 or 14, then. I mean, uh, don't quote me on that, but I know they're up there. No, nah, it's much more than that. I believe I believe they just grossed 40-something. But uh, anyway. Um, well, they, I know they have three compendiums. Each compendium is like 100 or like 45 issues at least. Yeah, I'm talking about volumes of trade paperbacks, though. I know. Either well, way, yeah, it's yeah. been around for a long time. Um, you know, and and the television show follows the source material quite closely. And uh, source material, there's certainly uh, a lot more uh, to be covered. I feel like you know, if if uh, viewership stays up for the show, uh, they could keep going with the show for years and years to come is because they have so much to work off of. Um, you know, like I said, if viewership stays up, uh, something that's remained to be seen, but as of right now, it's, it's pretty much the, it's the premier horror show on television. Um, the cool thing that I've always said about the walking dead is, uh, it's not, it's not a typical zombie ap- apocalypse tale. The different approach that Robert Kirkman took uh, to, to to telling this uh, zombie survival tale um, is that, you know, sure, the zombies are, are, are a horror element to the story, the main one probably, but he doesn't just focus on that. He focuses on... Uh, the actual survivors and some of the many other obstacles that they can encounter uh, within this whole zombie apocalypse scenario. So you don't just have the walkers coming after you. Yeah, that's a thing. It's like one of the main things. But you also have different groups of people that uh, have different interests. Um, you know, some are cannibalistic. Some are militant. Some try to run their own cities and, and uh, the different you know, uh, occurrences and things that happen with that. And then you got Rick's group, Rick Grimes, the main character, the guy in the sheriff's hat, uh, where, um, you know, he's just trying to lead a group of people to survive. And then you have, uh, you know, not just walkers, but you got all these other different groups of people that are, are trying to infringe on, on their survival as well. So it's just a fantastic read and it comes at you from four or five different directions, uh, and really leaves you thinking and wondering each time uh, you put the book down, you know, what the hell is Rick and the gang going to do to get out of this sticky situation? Uh, so, you know, there's a lot more than the typical one-dimensional uh, Dawn of the Dead type of zombie uh, survival tale there. Uh, if you're a big zombie person, you're not going to find anything... In regards to zombies, in my personal opinion, that's uh, more terrifying uh, or more fun to read uh, than The Walking Dead. So. Yeah, I never got into the show, but I do like the books. And with the with the way the concept is, it it could go for forever, and it just continue to follow people for extremely long periods of time. Yeah, it's all going to depend, I think, on. Uh, you know how receptive uh, viewership is going to be for years to come, but well, whether or not produ- the production team also gets uh, sick and tired of making the show, I think that's right. probably more like more like it. I mean, just think about it. 
to use for another example, I'll use the run on Seinfeld. Towards the end of Seinfeld, they were offering all the care, the, the actors were on that show about a million dollars per episode. And eventually, the amount of boredom and wanting to do other things outweighed wanting to make a shitload of money. Right. Right. And I think that will be one of these situations right here. It'll be interesting to see, because right now it certainly is a powerhouse, and it's been that way for years now. So, uh, you know, uh, I think it goes without saying, but if you're looking for, uh, you know, a, a captivating and, and bone-chilling horror tale to read uh, about zombies, uh, The Walking Dead is the choice title to pick up. Uh, so... Just a few more horror-related uh, uh, graphic novel titles to go over before uh, we end this podcast. This uh, first part one of our Halloween special this year. Um, I actually want to change gears here a little bit. And I want to talk about, believe it or not, I want to talk about Batman. Nah, no way, dude. <laughs> now, Batman uh, would typically be uh, uh, considered a crime noir kind of story, but uh, a lot of people that aren't familiar with some of the Batman folklore over the past 20 or some odd years, 30 years maybe, uh, might not realize the uh, horror elements that are actually put into these Dark Knight tales. Uh, the first one I want to go over is an actual Halloween special written by uh, industry titan and uh, Batman veteran uh, Jeff Loeb uh, and illustrated by uh, his partner in crime, Tim Sale, uh, is Batman Haunted Night. Now, this was like a three-part... Uh, Three-part tale that they put together uh, one year for Halloween, and uh, it had uh, the first story arc, you know, three three small story arcs that were supposed to, you know, supposed to be scary, you know, not just typical uh, uh, cops and robbers stuff, but but you know, eerie stuff. And, and with Batman's Rogues Gallery, you, you can really do a lot there. Uh, the first story uh, was comprised of the Mad Hatter, uh, not the actual Mad Hatter from uh, Alice in Wonderland, but this guy, Jervis Tetch, for those who are unfamiliar, who uh, was obsessed with the Alice in, in Wonderland story. And uh, he uh, used mind-controlled devices, microchips uh, that, that, you know, he, he implants into different uh, headwear uh, to control people. And he ends up kidnapping uh, Jim Gordon's daughter, Barbara, um, surprise, surprise there. I, I think just about every member of Batman's rogues gallery has kidnapped Barbara Gordon at one point in time. But, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, you know, has this weird, creepy fetish. That's, that's the thing about the Mad Hatter is he's not a very, uh, He's not a very uh, intimidating villain, but the scary thing about him is because there's a lot of sickos out there in real life that kidnap the kidnap you know children and women and 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 little girls and and do weird, disgusting things with them. Well, this kind of you know within the guidelines of of you know the comic book uh, code, if you will, um, they're able to show a lot of really taboo situations with this guy Jervis Tetch. You know he kidnaps. Uh, 
usually he kidnaps young women and he makes them dress up like Alice from Alice in Wonderland and he has these tea parties with, uh, you know, this tea laced with all different chemicals that make people trip out or what have you, hallucinogens. Um, so this was a scenario like that where, you know, and then Batman and Gordon team up and, uh, you know, break up the tea party, if you will. Batman always ends up beating the shit out of him because obviously he's a little man. But, you know, the, the cool thing is, is, is that, you know, it's no secret that, that every member of Batman's rogues gallery has some sort of mental deficiency in some way, shape, or form. And these are all applicable to real life uh evil doers if you will you know these these sickos you hear about on the news i mean jervis tetch is somebody who could definitely you know be someone in real life that's doing something similar if you will uh so that's what i find really particularly horrifying about that uh in the second story it deals with sort of like a you know a remake of of charles dickens christmas carol where they have uh ghosts visiting bruce wayne the ghost of uh let's see the ghost of poison ivy the ghost of the joker as uh christmas past or, or it's halloween though halloween past halloween present and then and, and death is halloween or future if you will um it was interesting though um I don't know, and, and, and Tim Sale's artwork too is is something that's always he's always been a, like really uh, strong with really capturing those shadowy uh, panels and and really depicting the creepy crawlies of Gotham City coming out of the shadows uh, like that. So um, if you're into like you know a Gotham City themed horror book uh, that you know has like you know a tinge of superhero thrown into it, but is also quite eerie. Uh, Batman haunted night would be for you. Um, so yeah, moving right along, I want to, uh, kind of talk about, uh, current Batman story arcs and, uh, another horror writer, uh, that most of you, uh, are probably very familiar with, uh, a man by the name of Scott Snyder. He is probably, uh, one of the most creative, uh, writers out there in the medium today, for sure. And he's a ex- extremely well-known horror writer, uh, for that. Um, but what most people might not realize, if you are not, uh, a big Batman fan, is that everything that Scott Snyder has written about the Dark Knight you know, from the start of the New 52 up until present day, has pretty much been a straight-up horror tale. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you have, uh, he started things out with uh, the Court of Owls. You have those regenerating zombie talon assassins, you know, sort of have uh, also a secret society conspiracy theory type thing thrown in there. So you get a couple of horror elements there, some yep. scary stuff. That's all horror. Check. I mean, then you get Death of the Family, where uh, everyone knows that the Joker is an immediate horror element. He's, you know, the ultimate horrifying serial killer. Cut uh, off face. Horror. Check. Yeah. Um, then uh, you go into Zero Year, and I mean, you got, the you know, once again, we talk about the great 
the great uh, underappreciated DC villain Dr. Death and uh, the usage of him uh, with that bone serum. Uh, uh, he's just this zero year. big hulking creepy claw monster. Yeah. Once again, another great horror element. And then, geez, the Riddler is only a couple steps away from being, like, Saw. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Want to answer a riddle? Like, riddle me this. Can you escape lions? And then they get eaten by lions. No, lions! Yeah, I mean, uh, the Riddler, yeah, certainly very similar, you know. Uh, Want to play a game? Yeah. So some real creepy stuff. Um, so then zero year, and that brings us to. Am I missing an arc? Because I want to talk, you know, about Doctor or Mister Bloom or whatever. But I feel like I'm missing something. Mm, end game. End game. Oh yeah, when, we got when, the Joker back again. Yeah. Well, yeah. When uh, when the Joker goes ahead and he uses his, he fashions a brand new Joker serum gas that is immune to almost all things that Batman knows how to counteract it with. And it's made out of this extremely rare element that is only found one part underneath the city. And, and it's regenerative. It's got regenerative qualities. So you get all these, you know... People losing their minds and they regenerate after you attack them. Yeah, and then they all get that horrifying Joker grin. And it's just they're taking over the city. It's eerie and it's creepy. And it's about... it. You know, it, it, it it's about as scary if not a li- even a little scarier than death of the family it's hard to say which is scarier i mean i'd say endgame had the most surprises i'll say that yeah well endgame had probably the scarier scenario yeah oh, absolutely. death, of the, death yeah. of the family was very much uh, it's terrifying personally for batman because but not to the general public right but as far as the general public's concerned everyone's turning into a laughing spaz zombie that's going to die within 24 hours and they are regenerating for that amount of time until the serum itself kills them. So that's that's all in all fairly much a doomsday zombie apocalypse scenario. Oh yeah, it's just so well done. Uh and there's just so many curveballs that were thrown into that story arc. Uh and then of course um you know, you have what's going on right now, not to get too far into it, but with, you know, a new villain in town, Mr. Bloom. Uh, and I'm not going to give too much away because that arc is still going on. Right. Um, but you, you certainly have a, a new, uh, distinctive horror element in the new character, the new villain in Gotham City of Mr. Bloom. Right. So, I mean, if you look at all of this bat history, this is probably three years worth of bat stories now. It's all horror. It's all horror books. Um, so once again, if, if you're somebody who's, uh, you know, not even just into Batman, but into, you know, sort of the mesh of superhero, crime noir, and horror together, but, but certainly, like, some strong horror elements. Uh, any of the new 52, right into the current Batman stories, is, is, is just prime reading material for this time of year. It's so good, so creepy. Uh, so well done. Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo. And, uh, I suppose just to mention, uh, since Scott Snyder is such a dedic, uh, sorry, decorated, uh, horror novelist and graphic novelist, uh, you know, it's important to mention some of his other horror work just because it's all so good. And it's all quite pertinent to, uh, uh, this time of year. So, you know, just real quick, some of the other stuff that you that he's written that you're gonna want to pick up. Uh, obviously, uh, 
you know, it's no secret that American Vampire was just an amazing award winning, uh, uh, horror book. Obviously, you know, uh, strictly a vampire tale. Uh, I personally haven't read it, so I can't really say much about it except that I know it's an award winner. Um, yeah, it did really well. Um, from what I gather about it, it's a story about uh, vampires who are kind of existing in different time periods within American history. And I, I guess they develop uh, some characters over that time, and then eventually they have a main plot. Right. Um, other than that, I wouldn't be able to tell you much. I do know that uh, Stephen King has um, consulted on the book. Yeah, well, um, we've mentioned in other podcasts too. Stephen King was, uh, a big mentor for Scott Snyder, uh, especially earlier on in his career when he was strictly doing a lot of horror stuff. Um, so I mean, what better mentor to have if you want to be a horror writer than the king of horror himself, Stephen King? Uh, so I mean, that's pretty neat to, to know about Scott Snyder. Um, so, uh, you know, besides American Vampire, just real quick, uh, he put out a few titles with Image, uh, which we've mentioned before, see uh, the Image podcast, but um, he wrote a story uh, entitled Severed with a childhood friend uh, who's also named Scott. I, his last name escapes me at the moment. Um, uh, but this story was about a, a, a cannibalistic uh, uh senior citizen who lures uh young boys into a, a rickety old cabin in the woods to uh devour their flesh <laughs> so um you know uh it's set, it's set in the uh late 1800s so um you know it follows that sort of motif in regards to technology and the cars that they uh depict but um it's quite a good horror tale it's very original it's something that Scott and his childhood friend had been thinking up for years uh, so it was years in the making uh uh then a few years later uh Snyder uh put out uh, a title for image called Witches uh which just to give you the uh reader's digest version um, it's sort of a tale about the, it's, it's, it's not a typical witch's tale. It's actually, it's spelled W-Y-T-C-H-E-S. These witches are much, much more different than, uh, the ones you might remember from, uh, I don't know, the Wizard of Oz or anything like that, uh, with the pointy hats. I mean, these are actual creatures that come up through the ground, uh, through tree roots. And, uh, they, 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 uh, you know, lure people into the woods, uh, subconsciously with, uh, their song and then they, uh, attack from the trees and they come out of the trees and they, uh, they drag people underground and they turn them into witches too. And then there's just more witch creatures coming up from the ground. Uh, it was a very creative, very distinctive horror tale. Uh, it was written very well and it's, it's gonna be ongoing. Uh, they just finished the first, uh, big story arc and put that out in trade paperback. Uh, and, uh, I believe, uh, Snyder is penning, uh, the next big arc as we speak. So be on the lookout for that. And last but certainly not least, uh, if you're a fan of vicious sea creatures, 
we have the story known as The Wake. It's like, you know, a standalone graphic novel. Uh, it came out in issue form, and then, you know, I picked up the hardcover because I just love the artwork by Sean Murphy so much. One of my favorite artists in the business. I know one of your favorites as well, Holden. It's very good. Um, now, this is a story, and we've we've spoke about this in the Vertigo podcast before, but just to touch upon it, uh, this is a story uh, uh, that regards uh, mermaids, but it is certainly not the, the typical mermaid you might be thinking of, such as the Little Mermaid or, you know, uh, sexy mermaids with the seashells on their boobs or whatever. You know, this is, you know, these creatures are menacing. They, and, and, you know, if you look at National Geographic, they have documented these creatures before to some extent. Like, like, it's true. It's true. You know, uh, these, these mermaids are real, but they don't look anything like Disney portrays them. They are creepy looking, almost like human fish hybrids with, you know, webbed claw hands and, uh, beady eyes and fangs like piranhas and fins and scales and just wait bleh. wait so so they don't sink under the water with jamaican crab accents <laughs> uh not to my knowledge at least not in this story um so uh scott snyder and sean murphy do a great job of taking these menacing creatures and and uh Obviously, there's more to the story, but you have a research team that's uh, stranded uh, in an uh, underwater base, and uh... yeah, they're researching the thing, and they got it chained up, and it was I don't know. Part one is probably very horror based. Part two is very much a uh, more sci-fi, you know? yeah, more of a sci-fi, more of a futuristic dystopia with a kind of a doomsday scenario where the the fish creatures it turns out there's not just one of them and it's all mystical it turns out there's like hundreds of thousands of them and then they kind of um flood the world and humanity's kind of struggling and it almost turns into water world with kevin costner I mean, mm. nobody's drinking pee <laughs> yeah it was good though it was really really good oh excellent too i mean i think it would have been a little creepier if they did show kevin costner drinking pee that's right, with a big pea smiling grin, with pea dripping down his chin. <laughs> Someone get that man a handkerchief. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, all I, I mean, pretty much anything Scott Snyder puts his hands on in the horror uh, medium uh, is turns into horror gold very shortly after. So any of those titles that we have spoken about that he has written, and he's written a wide array of different horror uh, books about different horror elements. I mean, pick your poison, uh, but you're always going to end up with an awesome, bone-chilling experience reading anything from Mr. Scott Snyder. So um, with that, I believe uh, that sort of sums up our list here of... Uh, uh, vital graphic novel reading for this ha uh, Halloween season. Uh, I didn't leave anything out, did I, Mr. Orm? No, I don't believe so. <laughs> All right. Well, um, there you have it, people. So if, if you're looking for some good, uh, uh, horrifying, uh, graphic novel reads that are going to keep you up at night, uh, for, uh, the next few weeks getting ready for Halloween here. Um, look no further than the titles we have 
presented to you today. Um, join us next week, uh, where we, uh, are actually going to go, uh, into part two of this Vigilant Geek podcast Halloween special and discuss, uh, the scariest and, uh, most vital, uh, uh, forms of other media, um, to, uh, watch or get involved with, uh, to prepare for Halloween. We're gonna discuss some, uh, of our favorite, uh, horror movies, horror television programs, video games, and what have you. Uh, joining us next week will be Nathan Burke and tentatively Mr. Mark Gallagher back on the show. So, uh, stay tuned for that and, uh, we hope you enjoyed, uh, part one of our Halloween special uh, this week. I am Andrew Puzak of Vigilant Geek Media, and with me, as always, my comic book partner in crime, Holden Orm, also of Vigilant Geek Media. And ladies and gentlemen, we just want you to remember, as always, stay vigilant! vigilant.